The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. April 20th, 2021. Three months and two weeks after the alleged insurrection at the United States Capitol back on January 6th, the District of Columbia's chief medical examiner, a man called Dr. Francisco J. Diaz, uh, has finally confirmed what some of us have known simply from the elimination of the alternative theories for months, that Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick died of natural causes. Uh, Dr. Diaz says he died from two strokes, which is a tragedy for his family, but not a crime. As Dr. Diaz states, there is no evidence of external or internal injuries. And let us not forget that the District of Columbia has been examining poor Mr. Sicknick for three months now. So the corrupt and incompetent Capitol Police's statement on January the 7th was false. In all its particulars, if you recall, it stated that Officer Sicknick was, quote, injured while physically engaging with protesters. He was taken to a local hospital where he succumbed to his injuries, unquote. There were no injuries, no injuries. The chief medical officer has now confirmed that. So the statement was not true and these Dirty cops knew it was not true. This corrupt and incompetent police department loosed a lie upon the world, bolstered by the story, launched in the New York Times, that Mr. Sicknick had died of blunt force trauma from what quickly became the world's most famous, if entirely non-existent, fire extinguisher. Here's how... Uh, America's alleged newspaper of record reported that story. Quote, he dreamed of being a police officer, then was killed by a pro-Trump mob. As their quote-unquote reporters, Zolan Cano-Youngs and Tracy Tully put it, remember those names, because they're going to be up for Pulitzers, even though the story is completely false. Zolan Cano-Youngs and Tracy Tully put it this way. On Wednesday, pro-Trump rioters overpowered Mr. Sickness and struck him in the head with a fire extinguisher, according to two law enforcement officials. Unquote. Those law enforcement officials were lying, and some of us have known that for months. On February the 11th, February the 11th, on Fox, I quoted Jonathan Swift, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after it, so that when men come to be undeceived, it is too late. The jest is over and the tale has had its effect. Uh, as I said on Fox, the falsehood flew on the wings of the New York Times for weeks and the tale has had its effect. There are millions of Americans who will still believe three decades hence uh, that Officer Sicknick had his skull smashed by Trump supporters wielding a fire extinguisher. There was no such fire extinguisher, no, quote, bloody gash in his head, per the Times, the truth, meanwhile, was not limping along after the Times falsehood. The truth remained walled up in the DC pathology lab, unknown to the world until this week. As I put it to Glenn Greenwald on the telly two and a half months ago. Glenn, are we uh, facing some kind of uh, politicised pathology lab in the District of Columbia? Yeah, I'm really indignant about this, honestly, just journalistically. It has been more than a month now since the event at the Capitol, and over and over and over again, media outlets on every platform have just asserted definitively that mm. a pro-Trump mob bashed the skull in of Officer uh, Sicknick with a fire extinguisher, something that we now know is completely false. Where are the retractions? Where are the self-examinations about why it is that they got this so wrong? And I think the point you made, Mark, at the beginning is the crucial one, which is, 
If you had 13 police officers dead and they just happened to be somewhat inaccurate about one of those deaths, then you could just sort of dismiss it to the fallibility of humans. But his death nice. was central to the narrative they peddled about what happened because he's the only person, as you said, that has been claimed to have died as a result of the mob itself. And as it turns out, mm. we don't even know if that's true. We don't know how he died or when he died or at whose hands he died. And yet millions and millions of people, not just now, but will always believe an utter lie because the media just endorsed it over and over. And obviously, there's some attempt. I mean, clearly, uh, the death of Officer Sicknick is a, a tragedy for his family. But, for example, uh, if they don't know the cause of death, the body was nevertheless released uh, for this uh, lying in state at the rotunda. The, the Democrats and the media are basically using uh, this officer's death uh, to, and to hang it around uh, the neck of the Trump supporters. It's not an accidental thing. It's quite calculated. Precisely. I mean, go and look at how many deaths of police officers occurred during the riots and protests over the summer from Black Lives Matter and Antifa. Numerous ones that were almost completely ignored. They don't care about the, the life of Officer Sicknick. They seized on him because he was the only person that they could use to peddle the narrative they wanted to create that would create the melodrama needed to get people to pay attention, which is if a mob breaks into a capital and doesn't kill anybody... It's a much less lesser story emotionally, politically, culturally than if the mob came in and actually murdered someone in this barbaric and savage way. They needed that lie for the political right. narrative that they wanted to peddle. That's what makes this so pernicious. None of them ever questioned it. None of them asked why if he were murdered so brutally, nobody had been apprehended. They didn't want to question it or interrogate it. Mm -hmm. They wanted to simply assert it without the slightest regard to whether it was true or not. After the fire extinguisher blunt force trauma rubbish was no longer sustainable, corrupt investigators acting at the behest of their political masters moved on to the theory that he was killed by bear spray, which would be a first anywhere on the planet. Meanwhile, those of us who suggested Officer Sicknick had died of natural causes were mocked by lefty commentators as, quote, Sicknick truthers, a coinage of Josh Marshall who boasted on Twitter that he'd invented it and has apparently not taken back his boast. Yet Mr Sicknick did die of natural causes, two strokes and no injuries, and everything else was just the most crude and repulsive political exploitation by Nancy Pelosi and by whoever puts the words on Joe Biden's prompter. Oh, and Dick Durbin, Dick Durbin, uh, the uh, chair of the Senate Justice Committee. The same terrorist mob that took Brian Sicknick's life stormed past everyone who stood in their path. What a day in the history of the United States of America. What a contemptible man that Durbin guy is. They needed a victim of the Trump mob, and Officer Sicknick's corpse was press-ganged into service. As Congressional Wanker of the Week, uh, Ted Liu of California, whom we were talking about only yesterday, tweeted back on January the 8th, every single MAGA rioter who committed a felony in relation to the death of the U.S. Capitol Police officer can be charged with felony murder, unquote. Meanwhile, the only actual homicide of that day, an unarmed woman called Ashley Babbitt, is, as I noted on Fox a fortnight back, completely forgotten. The quote-unquote authorities have closed their quote-unquote investigation. The name of the officer who shot her dead will never be officially released because the Capitol Police are exempted from the normal transparency laws that would apply to your municipal constabulary. Uh, for example, freedom of information laws do not apply to the Capitol Police. Police, in fact, is not the word for them. They do not police 
as we saw pathetically on January the 6th. They are a personal security guard for Congress, and they don't even do that terribly well, which is why they have to tell so many public lies. Their behaviour on January the 6th was dismal, and their behaviour since has been utterly disreputable, as has much of American officialdoms. As I put it to Glenn Greenwald back on that February show, we now have politicised pathology labs serving the needs of the Democrat media narrative, and there will be no reckoning for this, like the fake story of the Russians putting bounties on the heads of US servicemen, the blunt trauma bear spray drivel will all remain uncorrected. Somewhat reassuringly, the judge in the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, uh, managed to call out from the bench Maxine Waters, one of those very typical uh, federal legislators in America for whom a lifetime of quote-unquote public service has resulted in enormous, if inexplicable, wealth. The congresswoman went to Minnesota to ensure that the jury understood that the verdict in Mr Chauvin's trial is preordained and they're not to mess with it by observing obsolete white privilege rituals such as uh, weighing the evidence and applying the legal standard of beyond reasonable doubt. Most of the state's laughably misnamed legal system already gets this. The Hennepin County attorney took preemptive action by selling his house at a loss and moving to a hopefully less incendiary burg. If Trump's words on January the 6th were, quote, incitement sufficient to get him re-impeached, what were Maxine Waters? They've already driven the mob to attack the home of a witness and smear it in pig's blood. The judge pushed back because if the Maxine Waters model of due process were to take hold, there's not really much point to judges and juries, is there? Up against the mighty powers of the state, Derek Chauvin has a single solitary lawyer in court with him, Eric Nelson. He is not the only Eric Nelson practicing law in Minnesota, so naturally the other Eric Nelson has been receiving death threats merely for sharing the same name as the hated defense counsel of Derek Chauvin. You can defend Khalid, Sheikh Mohammed or any of the other jihad boys at Gitmo, that is, if you can get in the door without being injured in the stampede of white shoe law firms anxious to add the Allahu Akbar gang, to their list of clients. But when the Death to America crowd retain your services, no one bats an eyelid. When Derek Chauvin does, even your namesakes need additional security. Our Powerline pal John Hinderaker reports that as the actual Eric Nelson was in court making his closing argument, the other non-Chauvin Eric Nelson received the following email from a gentleman called John Sparrow. That's Sparrow, S-P-A-R-O. I wouldn't want the John Sparrow, who's a drummer with the Violent Femmes, to get any unpleasant emails. This guy is John Sparrow, S-P-A-R-O. R.O. And as Chauvin's lawyer was speaking in court, this is what Mr. Sparrow emailed to a lawyer with the misfortune to share the same name as Chauvin's counsel. I just want you to know you'll always be remembered as one of the most scummy racist attorney bleeps for the rest of your bleep life. Either way, this case goes, good people are going to hate you for the rest of your life because you're obviously a racist sticking up for another racist clown who was high on power. I'm sure there will be people looking for you. The morons march on, too stupid even to threaten the right people. And they don't care about that, do they? All Eric Nelsons are guilty, especially that one in Trafalgar Square. Meanwhile, there is an exhausted husk in the White House who occasionally gets brought up from the basement. Over the weekend, Joe Biden called the chaos at the southern border a, quote, crisis. And immediately the White House issued a statement saying that was not the position of the Biden administration. There's a man called Biden and an administration called Biden, but they're entirely separate entities. I can see you lying down for an afternoon nap After eating tapioca from a tray on your lap Sundown in your bed to take care If you find yourself climbing on an airplane stair 
Occasionally, Joe gets wheeled out to interact with foreign dignitaries. Here he is with the Japanese Prime Minister. And Yossi, I know how proud you are of the people of Japan are. And uh, you've got a Japanese boy coming over here, and guess what? He won the Masters. Japanese boy? In super touchy America, it would normally be politically self-detonating for a white man to use the word boy in proximity to the word master. Uh, but as Ed Driscoll commented, Joe Biden is turning into Foghorn Leghorn, or uh, in his case, actually, Foghorn Leg Hair. And uh, the court eunuchs of the American media seem to love Foghorn Leg Hair. Anyway... I know a cue for a song when I hear one. Number one in the UK, Belgium, Sweden, Switzerland, top five in France, Germany, Norway, Austria, Israel. For Annika, who sounds very Japanese there, and she has a very Japanese name, and she wore a kimono, but all that was just invented by the record company. She was a folk singer from Scotland, and last I heard, she's now working as a tour guide in Sterling. But I interviewed her many decades ago, and if Joe Biden's going to keep going on about Japanese boys, maybe I'll dust off that interview, and maybe the record company can re-release Japanese boy as a celebrity duet. You've got a Japanese boy. 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 Ooh, Japanese, Japanese boy. Okay, enough of that. Time for our Canadian boy. Broadcasting from behind the maple curtain, here's Radio Free Lawton. Thank you, Mark. The True North Strong and Free is particularly lacking in the free part this week. My own province of Ontario is dissatisfied with the progress of its stay-at-home order, so last Friday kicked things up a notch. For starters, in addition to the Canada-US border having been closed for about 13 months now, now the Ontario provincial border is too. Here's Premier Doug Ford. We're setting up checkpoints at all interprovincial borders. We'll be limiting access to border crossings between Ontario and the provinces of Manitoba and Quebec, with exceptions such as work, medical care, or transportation of goods. Only those with what the government deems to be an essential reason for entering the province are permitted to drive in from Quebec or Manitoba now. And on the very first day they tried enforcing that border, there was a backup at one such crossing of about 10 kilometers, and once all those cars got through, police had turned around four cars for non-essential business. A needless inconvenience with no benefit to anyone involved. Now, my essential reason would be Section 6 of Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which says every Canadian citizen has mobility rights within Canada. But if I'm being perfectly candid, if I didn't live in Ontario right now, I can't imagine wanting to fight my way into the province in its current state. Things aren't much better once you've crossed the Maple Curtain either. We have made the difficult but necessary decision to give police and bylaw officers special authorities to enforce public health measures for the duration of the stay-at-home order. I know that the majority of Ontario residents are doing the right thing. They're following the rules, keeping each other safe. But we need to step up enforcement. Special authorities. What might those be? Here's Premier Ford Solicitor General Sylvia Jones. After consulting with public health experts, we have made the deliberate decision to temporarily enhance police officers' authority for the duration of the stay-at-home order. Moving forward, police will have the authority to require any individual who is not in a place of residence to first provide their purpose for not being at home 
and provide their home address. Police will also have the authority to stop a vehicle to inquire about an individual's reason for leaving their residence. I cannot stress this enough. It is imperative that everyone limit their trips outside of the home to permitted purposes only. Ah, yes, the key to fighting COVID-19 is warrantless detention and questioning of citizens as to why they dare be outside their homes. At the beginning of that clip, Solicitor General Jones says this decision was justified by public health advisors. No mention of any constitutional advice or any indication that civil liberties were considered at all. And this is from the woman to whom Ontario's police agencies report. But in a bit of good news, the police were not interested in enforcing Doug Ford's police state. Every single one of Ontario's 44 municipal police forces said over the weekend they would not be conducting random stops and would not be questioning citizens as to why they were outside their homes. Only one police agency, the Ontario Provincial Police, said they would go along with it and ramp up their enforcement to align with the government's new directive. But the resistance against the government was just too strong. One day after giving those so-called special authorities, Ontario, quote, refocused, unquote, its regulations now requiring reasonable grounds to believe someone is attending ooh, ooh, an illegal gathering. It's not much better, but it is slightly better. And even with this slight backtracking, it doesn't change the profound enforcement culture the Ontario government is unleashing. Solicitor General Jones was also asked whether people should be snitching on their neighbour. In terms of people calling um, to snitch, to inform, um, look, we all have a personal responsibility. And I would hope that the vast majority of us would take that personal responsibility seriously. Um, when we see the ICU numbers rise, I would hope that people would take a second thought and consider their neighbours, consider those healthcare workers who have been working incredibly hard over the past 12 years. I'm never going to encourage people to inundate the bylaw enforcement or police departments with calls, but if it means saving lives, then I think we have to think about what your social responsibilities are as an individual. The top law enforcement official in Ontario's only concern with snitching is that it might overburden government phone lines. Apart from that, if it can save a life, go right ahead. Rat out your neighbors, rat out your mom, your dad, your kids, your grandma, rat them all out. It doesn't matter. Just make sure you spread out your calls over the course of the business day. For those who have the privilege of not being aware of the intricacies of Ontario politics, this is all from a conservative government. In fact, this was the party for which I stood as a candidate in the elections of 2018. And I can honestly say I was never more grateful for my electoral defeat than I was on Friday when all of this was announced. Back to you, Mark. Yeah, I felt bad about your election defeat. Andrew, I think someone had unearthed a photograph of you with me and your numbers uh, dropped 30% overnight or whatever it was. But now I reckon it's the best thing that ever happened to you, uh, that you are free of all association with that disreputable and entirely unconservative ministry in Toronto. I believe I mentioned the other day that the uh, sole surviving rationale for lockdown was uh, the Boris Johnson one from um, earlier this year. We just need you all to stay home just for a bit longer so our beloved National Health Service can vaccinate everyone in nothing flat, uh, which they managed to do in, in the United Kingdom. And whether or not the vaccine kills you, in the UK it certainly killed all the Ramonas who wanted to bore on about Brexit for another five years. Uh, because by comparison with the EU, Britain did a, a cracking job. Just to emphasise, I'm looking at it from a lockdown salesman's point of view here. Ooh, just another couple of weeks and then our tremendous uh, vaccine rollout will be over. But what's a lockdown salesman's pitch in Canada? There's, there's no vaccine to roll out. If you manage to get a first shot, it's uh, four months till you get the second one, and that one is going to be extended uh, and probably already has been as I speak. Canada is the crap hole of COVID. The deranged dominion is where every public health policy 
goes today. Canada has closed borders except to Chinese jet-setters, nightly curfews, mandatory quarantines in government sex assault hostels, and no vaccines because they fell off Chairman Xi's tanker somewhere in the Pacific. And then they think, oh, is there one police state measure we've accidentally forgotten to implement? Oh, yeah, internal security checkpoints. Uh, Just like they have in Sudan. In case you thought the deranged Dominion still had freedom of movement. And as Andrew points out, all this is either being implemented by so-called conservative parties or, as at the federal level, enthusiastically supported by them. I may have to storm Rideau Hall single-handed. Not sure who, if anyone, is living there at the moment and install myself as El Presidente. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. This brace of comments popped up at the end of my Monday column, and I was struck by them. Carl says nobody's going to get serious, quote, until the bottom falls out from the dollar, the standard of living collapses, and people learn once again that the facts of life are conservative. Then society will eventually grow affluent again, decadent ideas will regain favour, and the next decline will begin. And Andy responded to Carl, I think there's the potential for something worse than that. If China has to steal our technology to function, what happens when we are bankrupt? There are already shortages of microcircuits, uh, chips, uh, for everything from cell phones to automobiles, and of basic repair parts for household appliances. I have always worried as an engineer that the further we get from first principles in our STEM education, the closer we get to losing it all. How many kids today want to be machinists, welders, plumbers, electricians? Who wants to know how to wind an electric motor by hand? The Chinese can't even grow enough food to feed themselves. We'll be very lucky if we can maintain 1950s technology and standard of living if there's a real war with China that goes badly. Yeah, I, uh, I mentioned something similar Uh, At some event, or a related thought, I guess, at some event in New York a few years ago, the spinning Jenny uh, was one of those transformative uh, developments of the 18th century that enabled the Industrial Revolution. And the story we all learned at school was that uh, James Hargreaves in Blackburn or Oswald Twistle or wherever it was happened to pass a spinning wheel that had fallen over. And he noticed the wheel kept spinning with the spindle now pointing upward. And he realized there was no reason the spindles had to be horizontal. And if you put them vertically, one man could operate eight, nine, ten of them. And I said to the audience, what happens when all the production is over in China so the guy never sees the spinning wheel that's fallen over with the spindle pointing upward because he's at head office in Massachusetts and he only visits the plant in uh, Wuhan uh, once every six or seven years. And at the end, John Stossel, a very uh, clever man, a famous libertarian, John Stossel said in response, I don't get it. Why would you want Americans working in a horrible factory? Isn't it great that they no longer have to do that? Uh, Someone else makes the gizmos and we get to play on them. Uh, Which brings me to my second point. We often have all this talk about a Chinese or Iranian electromagnetic pulse attack. A nuke goes off in the sky and underneath it, boom! All America's computers are fried, which means not just your phone and your laptop, but your car and your bank records and the electric grid. And the shorthand is often uh, formulated thus. In a second, we'd be returned to the mid-19th century. But that's not the whole story. We'd be returned to the mid-19th century, but having lost all the near-universal skills of the mid-19th century. You look at the pyjama boys and psycho-trannies rampaging through the streets of Portland. Uh, You think if they ran across a pre-computer automobile on cinder blocks, a 1958 Edsel or whatever, you think they'd be capable of getting it going? Well, would you want them shingling your roof? There would be a small number of persons with useful skills and millions and millions 
resentful of them, which is not always conducive to social tranquility. Would they loot and burn as they do in Portland or as they do in parts of South Africa? Would they rather kill the farmers who provide food for those who do not farm and fill the drainage ditches with the carcasses they devour? Our brand new tale for our time is about reprimitivization. Uh, and uh, I'd urge you to give it a listen because you would be surprised at how primitive it gets, and very fast. The year is 2073, and a man and his grandkids attempt to navigate a post-apocalyptic world years after a great plague wiped out much of the population. No, this isn't a dispatch from the 53rd year of our two weeks to flatten the curve, but a glimpse at Jack London's novel The Scarlet Plague. The Scarlet Plague is the latest addition to Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Tune into Stein Online nightly as Mark serializes this timely novel. Mark Stein Club members can listen to this latest tale and the entire back catalogue of nearly four dozen by going to www.steinonline.com. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. French troops in the Ruhr, fascists on the Adriatic, and a deadly gas over New Jersey. It's April 1921. A hundred years from today. Your world news update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. French troops are currently occupying certain German cities in the Ruhr. In Paris, the cabinet has now voted for the French army to occupy the entire Ruhr region unless Germany pays one billion marks of its reparation bill by May the 10th. The Allied Reparations Commission has considered the matter and feels France's ultimatum is too generous. They want the Germans to deposit one billion marks in gold into the Bank of France by April the 30th. Berlin requested that the United States act as mediator in the reparations dispute between Germany and the Allied Council, but the U.S. Secretary of State, Charles Evans Hughes, has rejected that request. The Reparations Commission has also announced that the amount to be paid by Germany will be 132 billion gold marks in annual installments of 2.5 billion. Look for the silver lining in a 2.5 billion mark annual demand? Well, even in bad times, a lot of people still want to be German. In a plebiscite in the Austrian state of Tyrol, citizens voted overwhelmingly to become part of the new Germany. Poland has ratified its new peace treaty with the Soviet Union and the Ukraine and established diplomatic relations with Moscow. Under the treaty, the Poles get the district of Polesia from the Ukraine, 3,000 square kilometres near Minsk, and also 30 million gold rubles. In the free state of Fiume, on an Adriatic inlet between Italy and the new kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, the communists lost the election. They then seized control of the government. Now, just four days later, the fascists have staged a counter-coup and driven the communists from power. Communist coups, fascist counter-coups, are you in the mood for a little democracy? Albania has held the first ever parliamentary election in the history of the country. Uh, to be more specific, the people have elected a group of electors who in turn will select the 78 members of the unicameral legislature, the Kuvendi. Ceylon is way ahead. Uh, they have just held their third election for the legislature and with an expanded number of elected members divided among the European, Sinhalese, Muslim and Tamil 
communities, uh, plus one for the Chamber of Commerce. If that all sounds too complicated, Peru has simplified matters. Its president, Augusto Leguia, has just suspended the nation's Congress and proclaimed a dictatorship. Poor butterfly neath the blossoms waiting, waiting for the right to take part in political life. The moments pass into years, the years pass into decades. Japan's House of Peers has just rejected a measure passed in the House of Representatives that would have permitted the participation of Japanese women in political associations. In Canada, over 59% of voters in Ontario have approved the ban on the importation of liquor. The first Catholic Lord Lieutenant of Ireland in a quarter millennium has arrived in Dublin to take up his office. Viscount Fitzalan takes charge at a time when events seem to be moving beyond the control of Dublin Castle. After an army court-martial, Republican rebel Thomas Trainer has been hanged at Mountjoy Jail for the murder of two auxiliaries in Brunswick Street. Four other members of the Irish Republican Army have been executed by firing squad at Collins Barracks in Cork. In the United States, President King of Liberia has been welcomed to Washington by President Harding. The administration is said to be willing to loan Mr. King the $5 million he came to America to procure, but opinion in Congress is far cooler toward him, notwithstanding that the Liberians believe both the French and the British have designs on their country. Perhaps on his next visit, President King can see America from the air. Fred Hardesty, an engineer with an interest in aviation, has announced plans for a national fleet of airships to transport travellers between New York, Chicago and San Francisco. $50 million in stock will be sold to finance the construction of dirigibles over 750 feet long, able to carry 52 passengers at a time at up to speeds of 100 miles an hour. Service will commence between New York and Chicago within the year. blow our babies back to us. Tornadoes swept across the deep south, starting in northeast Texas and blowing through to northwest Georgia, killing 97 persons across five states, but 66 of them from just two Arkansas counties, Hempstead and Miller. A statue of Simon Bolivar, the great liberator and president of Venezuela, Peru, Bolivia and Gran Colombia, has been dedicated by President Harding in New York's Central Park. The statue is a gift to the city from Bolivar's native land, Venezuela. The Census Bureau has announced that the total foreign-born population of the United States has increased by only 2.6% since 1910. In the previous decade, the increase was over 30%. The Bureau ascribes the dramatic decrease in foreign population growth, quote, to the almost complete cessation of immigration 
during the World War and to considerable emigration back to Europe. In the course of the war, over 800,000 German immigrants, 600,000 Austrians, that's over half of the Austrian-born population of the US, uh, some 316,000 British subjects of Irish stock, and almost 204,000 Russians all left the United States. On the other hand, there's still a lot of foreigners here. Nebraska has decided to prohibit all persons other than U.S. citizens from acquiring property in the state. The Douglas National Bank has received its charter from the Comptroller of the Currency in Washington. That makes it the first national bank, as opposed to a private bank unregulated by the federal government, the first national bank to be controlled by Negroes. It has $200,000 in capital and $50,000 in surplus, with shares of stock limited to black men and women living in Chicago. Voters in Cuba have elected Alfredo Zayas y Alfonso as the new president. He may not be the biggest champ in town right now. In Havana, the World Chess Championship has ended with Emmanuel Lasca conceding defeat to Cuba's hometown boy, Jose Raul Capablanca. Elder Skelter, you really should run for shelter when this particular cloud rolls by. In Bound Brook, New Jersey, over 100 people are injured and at least one dead after a cloud of phosgene gas began spreading over the city in the early morning hours due to a faulty valve on a storage tank at a local paint factory. Phosgene was used in deadly concentrated form as a chemical weapon during the late World War. Every day, millions of people around the British Empire clean their clothes and their kitchens and their bathrooms with the disinfectant Parazone. The man you have to thank for Parazone is Edmund Mills, who was a professor at the Royal Technical College in Glasgow when he invented what's now a household staple. He has died at the age of 80. Better than a palace with a gilded dome is a love nest you can call home. But what happens if your lovebird doesn't like your love nest? August Schell was a hugely successful German newspaper magnate, the founder of Die Woche and proprietor of the Berliner Abendzeitung. But behind every great man is the little woman and Herr Schell, surely loved his. He so wanted to surprise his wife that he had a villa secretly constructed for her in Dahlem. Unfortunately, one day while out driving, 
they chanced to pass by it, and she remarked on what an ugly building it was. So just as secretly as he had it put up, he had it secretly demolished. August Shell is dead at seventy-one, and we hope she likes his tomb. And that's the way of the world. April nineteen twenty-one. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. I'm a bit too sad about the funeral of His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh to say anything very substantive about it. As I mentioned on the day of his death,、uh, I went to a small private dinner. With him at Buckingham Palace, a royal duke, an earl, a viscount, couple of barons, a knight, and a plain old Canadian Mister. Every other guest from that dinner, the Earl of Carnarvon,、uh, that's Porchy for you fans of the Crown,、uh, Sir Angus Ogilvy, the husband of Princess Alexandra, Lord Blake, the great Tory historian. Every other guest is dead. Our host died a week and a half ago. I am the lone survivor, and thus I shall be the next to die. Which is a glum thought. So how about a non-glum one? A bit of musical trivia.、Uh, we have many musical mavens who listen to this show, such as、uh, Gary Alexander, who has his own marvelous、uh, musical show on the radio in the Pacific Northwest. If I were to ask Gary to name the records Frank Sinatra made with. Count Basie, he would have no difficulty answering. Likewise, if I were to ask Gary to name the record Frank made with Duke Ellington, but if I were to ask him to name the record Sinatra made with the Duke of Edinburgh, I think I just might stump Gary. So here it is, a charity fundraising single for Britain's National Playing Fields Association, whose president,、uh, the Duke. Uh, Edinburgh, that is not Ellington,、uh, whose president the Duke was for sixty-six years.、Uh, Frank does the introduction, and then Prince Philip sings.、Uh, my stenographer may have typed that up the wrong way round. In buying this record, you have joined Frank Sinatra, Ivan Novello, and Carol Coates in helping to provide money for more playing fields. Thank you all on behalf of the many thousands who will benefit from your support. If only she'd looked my way, just stopped to say a word. Of greeting, this let's pretend would end there and then. The very moment when my heart stopped beating, if only. Smile that little while, however fleeting, would always seem a dream. To dream today, if only she'd look.
Axel Stordal arranging and conducting sung vocals by Frank Sinatra, spoken vocals by the Duke of Edinburgh, and I think His Royal Highness actually makes a slight mistake there in thanking Ivan Novello and Carol Coates, because while Ivan Novello certainly wrote the music, the words were not by the excellent Mr Coates, but by Alan Melville uh, from the hit London musical Gaze the Word where it was sung as If Only He'd Looked My Way. Sinatra recorded that a little before the show opened, a month after its London premiere in February 1951, Ivan Novello was dead. A very rare single with a very rare double act, the chairman of the board and the Duke of Edinburgh, a year before Princess Elizabeth ascended the throne. If only she'd looked my way. She did, when she was 13 years old, and she never looked away. That will do it for today's show. As you may know, I've done the intro to Mark Morano's new book, Green Fraud. If you don't fancy giving your business to Amazon, you can get it right here at the Stein Online Bookstore, and I'll be honoured to autograph it for you. Or you can get big-time savings if you buy it in a denialist double bill we call a fraud and a disgrace. You'll find that over at the Stein Store. Do join me this evening for episode three of our latest tale for our time, The Scarlet Plague by Jack London. You would be surprised at how quickly reprimitivization takes hold. And tomorrow at Stein Online, we'll have Laura's links, your indispensable internet uh, roundup, and then I'll be on the telly with Tucker. Would you like a little more Ivan Novello to close? I can hardly bear to hear the lyric of this song these days because it makes me too sad. We'll gather lilacs in the spring again and walk together down an English lane. Let us walk that lane instead with the masquerade string quartet. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.